Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right, we're here today with our alumni, John. And um, so, John, welcome. Thanks for joining Thanks. us Thanks today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'll kind of throw it over to you right away. I'm just curious, uh, when did you graduate from Pride and um, how long have you been sober? So I've been sober since I graduated from Pride. I graduated <laughs> from Pride in October of 2006. So my sober date is September 3rd of 2006. Um, so 14, coming up on 15 years, which is... As I say, crazy. I cannot believe it. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thanks. What led you to um, seek treatment in the first place? Can you give us a little bit of history about, you know, your use? And what sure. It was, I mean, it, it was not a straightforward linear path. Yeah. It, was, it, it was long and circuitous and pretty messy. I was living in New York City, and I had been kind of socially using for... A long time, and I think my version of social use, social use is different from kind of what the average person's social use was. My, my social use was drinking most every night, whether it be going out to bars or dinner um, or drinking with friends. But then on the weekends, I was going out Friday and Saturday night and just doing a lot of club drugs and recovering on Sunday and then going to work on Monday. And so my quote-unquote social use one of the tricky things was it went on for a really long time. So it went on for about seven or eight years like that, kind of going relative. When I look back, I was going pretty hard, but it just felt like my normal. So what that did in that time was teach me that the rules didn't really apply to me, um, that other people's lives, if they were addicts, were falling apart, and I was kind of getting away with it. I was keeping my jobs. I wasn't losing friends. I wasn't losing relationships. And so then by the time the inevitable happened and I started losing jobs and I started losing friends and I started losing relationships, it was really, really hard for me to get it into my head that it was because of my use. Um, it felt like it was all sorts of bad luck and other people not doing me right and all of that so it was really really hard for me to really want to make any changes um i went to a psychiatrist for a couple years that would kind of give me some diagnoses and put me on some meds that i thought okay this will be the change that i need that wasn't really working um ultimately i went to a treatment. Um, it was a pride back then used to have a New Jersey outpost that was attached to a, a hospital. And I went to that pride and um, stayed there for a couple weeks and then went back to my apartment and they suggested, you know, you should go to meetings and you should do all of this stuff. And I was like, I don't think so. Um, and then so I went back to my apartment and was using again within a couple weeks, probably. Um, no, absolutely. Who am I kidding? It was <laughs> definitely within a couple weeks. And then um, that was a cycle, and then that exact same thing. It wasn't always that pride, but that was a cycle for seven treatments in a row over the course of eight years. Things would get really bad. I would go to treatment. They would suggest I would, afterwards, I would go to meetings and make some changes or move out of where I was or change some of my life, and I was just not having it. And every single time I would go to treatment and feel like 
this time I feel so good in treatment. I'm learning so much. I'm really getting it. I'm really excited. I'm for sure going to do well. And I don't think I, I literally don't think I ever made it over two weeks. Um, so then by the time, so that was all around the um, New York City area that had been going on from 98 to 2006. And then in 2006, I to be perfectly honest, had a lot of paranoia and I was hearing voices. I was having a conversation with the voices that I was hearing and agreed with the voices. My subconscious, I don't know, but I agreed with the voices that I needed to call my sister and ask for help. And then called my sister and she was out on a plane the next day from LA to New York. And by the time she got there, I can remember thinking, damn it, why did I call her? Because I was feeling better. <laughs> but yeah, for sure. And then by the time she was there, they, the jig was up. So we realized I had to get out of New York. So I came here, and that's what I needed. I needed to come to a completely different place, have a completely new start, make some of the changes, really invest in it. So, I mean, when I said pride changed my life, pride saved my life. So that's, that's how I ended up out here. But it was... It was pretty messy for several years. So you're the second New Yorker we've had on this podcast, and the second yes. person that's referenced this infamous New Jersey outpatient. <laughs> so, and I'm and I'm still fascinated because I'm not a New Yorker. So, can you explain like how? Because you were living in the city. Yep. And so, but you would go and drive to outpatient every day, or you would take the. Subway? Mine was inpatient, so it was oh, okay. attached to an inpatient um, psychiatric unit, and um, but it was the LGBT version. So I think what happened was I'm guessing Pride did some co-branding work yep. with this organization, um, and it's just I mean it's not. The marketing of treatment centers isn't that much different now, right? If you need help, you go and you Google, like, addiction treatment centers and then whatever you can think of words to follow that. And so it's such a shot in the dark sometimes. And so there was that was the LGBTQ version. That was the one treatment center on the East Coast. So I thought that they were going to be the ones to fix me. And then another thing that stuck out to me when I was listening to you just now was... Um, you talked about using socially, and I think a lot of people think that they don't have problems because people think addiction is something you do daily versus how you use it. Yep. And so, so many people go out to the clubs and dabble in this, dabble in that, and then it becomes over time an addiction that they don't even know is there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so to me, um, I mean... I was working in a kind of fast-paced media field where, unfortunately, socially for me, was using and drinking every day because everyone I knew was using and drinking every day. Um, so that was a challenge. But I do think that, I mean, I know enough about the disease to know it's really not about how much you use. It's not about how often you use it or the, or the way you inject or the way you use it. It's about the consequences it's having in your life. And so if I compare myself to someone else's use, and I'm not having any consequences, what that's gonna tell me is I don't have a problem. But once I start to have some of the consequences, that's when it's really impacting me. So a lot of people who, can, who would say they're socially using, if, if people are going out two or three times a week and it's not impacting anything, fantastic. I mean, go for it. There's theoretically some people who use some pretty hard drugs infrequently not having any problems and they don't meet the criteria for a substance use disorder. But um, for a lot of people, once you start to use some substances in particular, if you start to use more frequently, it can slowly, slowly snowball. But to your point, it, it can happen really slowly over time. Mm -hmm. 
And I heard too, um, you know, you start drinking or, you know, going out socially. Um, is that how it started for you? Just with alcohol, going out and drinking with workers after work, and then slowly it snowballed into, you know, heavier use, um, you know, heavier drugs. For sure. So, um, you know, I didn't really use much in high school, a couple parties maybe in college. The minute I hit my college campus, it was on, and I looked—I mean, I looked—I looked old enough that I could buy alcohol, and that got me into entry to a lot of parties. And so, I was just using a lot. So I drank a lot in college. After college, I was still drinking a lot and going out a lot, but not necessarily as much. And I wasn't really working in professions that were requiring that much of me. So, so again, it felt like I could use a lot or go out a lot. Not really—it wasn't really impacting much. Um, after I moved up to New York City, I went to grad school for a couple of years. I don't think I used or drank in more than like maybe five or ten times over the course of, of two years. And then once I graduated, it was just it was about going out to um, dinners. It was about going out to bars to meet people it was just really what I would look at now is it genuinely was just a really social thing and then not I don't want to blame the field I was working in because there were so many factors I mean I've always been attracted to people who are kind of pushing boundaries a little bit and so I'm sure there's a part of me that was always finding the friends who are going out the most or using the most and it just I would look around and everyone I was um, with were kind of doing the same things I was, so it just seemed really normal for me. It, but it absolutely grew a lot over time. And do you think living in the city had anything to do with your use? Do you think that amplified it at all? Because I know that that's obviously a pretty fast-moving city. Um, I don't know. I have a really hard time answering that because mm -hmm. it does seem like from the outside, oh, you're in New York, of course you're using drugs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think for me, it was the need to belong, like it is for a lot of people. It was the need to belong. It was the need to feel comfortable in my own skin. It was a way to kind of manage my emotions. It was a way to feel good about myself, to get some confidence. And I don't think that was necessarily about the city. I think that was just where I was in my life. I think, I mean, I, I'm... 100% positive. If I was going through the same thing, the same kind of career in Minneapolis, I I would I would still be sitting right here. Mm -hmm. um, I do think you know there are some environments that encourage it, but I don't think it's necessarily the city as much as it is the people and the and the um, kind of situations I was in. Sure. I know with a lot of people in the LGBTQ community, there's a lot um, tied with sex and use of substances, whether yeah. that be meth, GHB, poppers. Was Did you have that experience as well? Um, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so absolutely. If I, if I had to look back, if someone said, when did you first become an addict or when did you first start showing compulsive behaviors? Like, I could trace compulsive behaviors back to grade school. Um, I look at things that I did in um, junior high. I used to do this thing. Um, my dad has passed, but a couple of years before my dad passed, um, we were back in my hometown, and I was kind of just telling him some of these stories, and he was just so fascinated by it. But um, I had this, like, side business on my um, school bus when I was a little kid in, like, seventh or eighth grade where I was dumpster diving for porno magazines oh. and then selling the porn on my school bus. Like, honestly, like, my dad was like, good job. Um, but, like, I looked back and I was like, what the f 
f was that about? Like it was just this like this whole idea about the naughtiness of sex and the naughtiness of what I was doing. Like there was just this kind of compulsive thing about it, absolutely. And so I think about times like that, but then I think throughout college, sex was always a really compulsive thing, the search for sex. And it wasn't necessarily tied to use. It wasn't like I was going out and getting wasted and then looking for sex. I was looking for sex when I was stone cold sober. Um, the use certainly helped and I think probably kind of added to it. Flash forward five or six years when I was up in New York and started using stimulants and that really changed the game for me. And so um, chemsex or the use of methamphetamine and sex was just a huge, huge thing for me to the point that um, for several years I don't think I had sex without using um, specifically meth, but some type of um, drug. And I don't think that I would use my drugs of choice, which is primarily meth, but also cocaine and ecstasy and other things. Um, I don't think I would use any of those drugs without the hunt for sex entering the conversation. And so for the last few years, when I think about it, I can't really think about one without the other. So the two were really, really fused. And I, I know enough about the way the um, disease affects the brain that it's the exact same neurotransmitters giving the exact same dopamine rush. And so the two were really fused in my, in my mind. Um, so I would say it all started with sex, but then once I discovered meth, the two were really, really combined. And so that was one of the things that made it really hard for me to get sober was I was going to a bunch of treatment centers, even the New Jersey Pride. I don't know if I ever talked about my sex life. Mm -hmm. um, or if I did, it was kind of superficial. And so that was a huge, huge driver, not just a, a kind of a trigger, but everything about sex was related to meth for me. And so when I would try and get sober, if I would talk about the drug or, or try and work the steps or try and read the big book, it just seemed kind of alien to me because that wasn't the type of use that I knew. So it was really that, because I was going to, um, I went to that, that um, Pride New Jersey a couple times and then some straight treatment centers and they were great, but I just wasn't getting to the underlying issue, the underlying thing that I felt was keeping me um, using. So it really wasn't until I came out here that I was able to talk about that compulsivity, talk about some of the darker stuff, talk about my sex life in intricate detail with people, um, and really start to unwind those. So my recovery, um, some of the big changes I made, so my recovery was really about addressing both at the same time. And I, I, I still don't know where else at that time that I would have been able to do that other than here. Do you think your use of drugs while having sex had anything to do with like internal insecurity with your identity? Oh, or? For sure. For sure. Um, at that point, I absolutely would have said no. I'm really good with who I am. I can remember when I was seeing that psychiatrist, and I would always say, I'm so insightful about who I am. I really know who I am. I had no idea who I was. Um, and 
I'd, I'd experienced, I would call it kind of small T trauma. My coming out was not really great with my parents. And so I was really kind of disconnected from them. Um, but I was also growing up and I grew up in the um, southwest of the U.S. And I went to my I graduated from high school in 83. So those were not times when people were really open about um, being gay. And then I found a life in New York that was, um, was surrounded by gay people. And I, was, I had, had this whole culture. But I hadn't really done the work internally to feel comfortable with who I was. Um, I was at one of the marches on Washington in like 91 or 92 or something like that. And um, a news station interviewed me and like, you know, I was in the middle of like, like this big rush of all these people. And I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll talk to anyone. And then found out I was on the ABC um, Evening News the next night. Oh. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I am not ready to be out to the entire country. Um, <laughs> um, but there it was. And um, I don't, like, I, I still, I never really got a lot of, oh, was, I saw you on the news. Like, that didn't happen much, but I can remember being absolutely terrified because I was not, I want, I, I still at that point really needed to control the narrative mm -hmm. because I didn't feel comfortable who I was um, about who I was and how I was showing up in different environments. And like, oh, well, what if these people at work find out about it? All of that was just about self-confidence and understanding my, my shame and working through it and then talking about kind of my sex life. Like, it, my sex life was not like a Jane Austen novel. It was <laughs> it was <laughs> compulsive and there were um, bathrooms and there were bathhouses and all of that stuff. Um, and I had not an opportunity really to talk about it. And so just living with that, it became this thing that I wasn't talking about it. I didn't know who I could talk about it with. The only people I knew that were kind of in that culture were also heavily using. And so it, it would just feed on itself. That was the only kind of environment I knew where I could really feel calm, where I could let down my guard. And so I would sober up, feel really uncomfortable, feel like this isn't the world I feel comfortable in. And it wasn't like I was seeking the high. It wasn't like I was seeking the sex. I was just seeking to feel normal. I was just like looking for that comfort that that culture was. And so it just kept drawing me right back in. Yeah, that connection and recovery, as we all know, is all about connection um, and, you know, finding those healthy connections and finding those healthy pathways in your brain to connect, you know, sex to things other than drugs and just pleasure um, without without the substances. So you did mention the big book um, is AA um, and the 12 steps, your, your um, you know, method that you use on your road to recovery. I will, I will say, I don't want to talk about any specific fellowships, but okay. I will say that that I actively worked the 12 steps and have continued to work the 12 steps since I got sober. I've had a sponsor since I got sober. I've always had sponsees. I always go to meetings. I have been engaged in probably five or six different fellowships over the course of time. Um, there's a couple that I've really kind of connected with the most. Um, but that's kind of looking at things on this side of pride. It was really hard for me. I mentioned before that I didn't really feel like the rules applied to me. And so then when people would say, you know, the solution is found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you need to find a higher power and you need to surrender to it all. I, there was no chance I was going to do that. There was no chance. I had such a mental block, such a bias against it because I just didn't understand it well enough. Um, once I was able to really look at it a little more open-mindedly, which 
unfortunately for me, meant that I had to move hundreds of miles away and I had to have no other option, then I got a little more open-minded. Um, but to be perfectly honest, even after I went to um, treatment and moved out here, I was a good six months sober and I was doing the stuff that people told me to. I was working the steps. I was working the steps out of a workbook with a sponsor, but I didn't really think that the 12 steps were going to work for me. It took me about six or nine months before I could start to realize my life was getting so much better. And the only thing I could attribute it to was the program. I have, for me, I had to see it working for myself before I would believe in it. And so that's when my faith in the program started was a good nine months after my um, sober date because I, 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 I still don't intellectually understand or rationally understand how the 12 steps work, but I don't need to because I know 100% they've worked for me, and that's all that matters. So I, I, I mean, it's that whole intellectualizing thing. I'm not going to intellectualize myself to getting clean and sober. I'm going to feel, I'm going to have emotions that are going to get me there and just be connected with those. So that was, so it was a challenge. Yeah. So you mentioned there was kind of a switch for you when you came out here. What was it that made it so different from your other experiences? So my other experiences, I still had the option of going back to my apartment on Jane Street in the West Village and going to meetings if I needed to, mm-hmm. um, or if I felt like it, or if I felt like there were going to be good-looking people at the meetings. Um, <laughs> Out here, I didn't have anything. I didn't have money. I was living in a, I moved out here. I went to treatment. I, I moved into a sober house, um, and everyone I knew was in the program. So I would go to meetings because my friends were going to the meetings, or I needed to go to three or four meetings because of my sober house. I ended up doing 90 and 90 because, you know, there's this competitive part of me. I was like, I want to show them that I'm doing everything. I was doing it, but I really didn't really believe that the principles or the ideas were um, <laughs> maybe relevant to me, but definitely not going to work for me um, until they did. Until they did. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good spot to stop. Um, mm-hmm. Unless you have any more questions, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Super insightful. Um, I've heard your story a few times, and every time I just uh, learn a little bit more. So I awesome. appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. Yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. For more information about our services, please call 952-522-5683, visit pride-institute.com, or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.